This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Conclusion For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12.2 Be ye followers, imitators, NASB, of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. The Christian is called to ethical self-consciousness. Out of this comes epistemological self-consciousness. Ethics is the fundamental issue, not philosophical knowledge. The increase in the ethical understanding of Christians results in their increasing understanding of the Bible's principles of knowledge. Christians think God's thoughts after him, as creatures made in his image. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 The issue is obedience, not philosophical rigor. Obedience in the long run is what brings the church increasing wisdom and increasing philosophical rigor. The followers of Satan cannot expect to match the church intellectually in the long run, for Christians have the mind of Christ ethically, 1 Corinthians 2.16. As Van Til once, or more, said, It does no good to sharpen a buzz saw that is set at the wrong angle. No matter how sharp it becomes, it will not cut straight. So is the man, mind of man. The only thing that keeps the covenant breaker from going mad and committing suicide is that God restrains his ability to follow the logic of his anti-God presuppositions. He also restrains their suicidal impulses. He does this for the sake of his people, who in history need the cooperation and added productivity of the unregenerate. God restrains them simply to make them productive. Without God's restraint, they would be impotent. This is why the kingdom of God will win in any open competitive contest with Satan's revival kingdoms. Christians unfortunately do not believe this in our era, which is why they are so fearful. They see the satanic world system getting worse, evil getting richer, and Christian influence declining. The kingdom of righteousness, in their view, cannot survive a fair fight, let alone an unfair fight. They conclude that God's people are doomed to be historical losers, abandoning responsibility. They simultaneously believe that since Christians cannot win in open competition, socially, intellectually, culturally, economically, any attempt to establish biblical law as the foundation of law and order must be the recommendation of potential tyrants. Quote, After all, if these people are really trying to build a self-consciously Christian society, and if they really expect to win, 
then they must be planning to impose tyrannical force. We know that Christianity cannot defeat the power of religion. Therefore, any program that proposes such a victory must have as its hidden agenda a revival program of power. End quote. Christians have generally accepted as valid the worldview of the power of religion. They have concluded that power, and only power, is the basis of successful political programs. They have accepted Mao's dictum that power, and everything else, grows out of the barrel of a gun. They do not accept the operating principle of the Dominion religion, namely, that long-term authority is the product of a bottom-up extension of God's strategy of dominion, beginning with self-government under biblical law. They do not believe that biblical law produces social peace and prosperity. Thus, fearing the responsibilities of dominion, because they mistake dominion for tyrannical power, and because they do not want to be labeled Christian tyrants, Christians seek an alliance with humanistic power religionists against the dominion religion. A minority of Christians may occasionally seek to become powerful themselves in terms of humanism's acceptable political strategies. Christians generally do not believe that God, in His providence, designed the mind of man for the purpose of man's taking dominion. They do not believe that regenerate minds that necessarily process the mind of Christ, possess the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, are dominically superior to unregenerate minds that have the mind of Satan. Thus, Christians have retreated time and again in the cultural and intellectual battles. They have justified these repeated retreats by devising eschatologies of inevitable, guaranteed defeat for the visible kingdom of God. This makes it easier to run up the white flag. What else could we expect of it but defeat? After all, we're Christians. Our enemies have stolen the Bible's vision of victory and its doctrine of providence. They have reworked these doctrines to fit their requirements. Christians are fearful of an enemy army that has stolen everything positive that it has in its arsenal. Christians do not see that it is our God who makes the rules. In contrast, our enemy knows what wins. Satan cannot win if his followers cling to his own doctrine of chaos. This is why he has stolen our vision and worldview. Who has the right to adopt such a program of victory? Whose commander gave a death blow to his rival's head? Genesis 3.15 at Calvary. Admittedly, the church suffers from a limp, just as Jacob did, Genesis 32.25. The church's heel is injured, just as God promised that Christ's would be, Genesis 3.15. But the enemy's head is crushed. When going into battle, which wound would you prefer to march in with? Unbelievers appear to be culturally dominant today. Christians have far too long seen themselves as the dogs sitting beneath the humanists' tables, hoping for an occasional scrap of unenriched white bread to fall their way. They have begged humanistic college accreditation associations to certify the academic acceptability of their struggling little colleges. They worry about their own competence. They think of themselves as second-class citizens. And the humanists, having spotted this self-imposed second-class citizen mentality, have taken advantage of it. They have sent Christians to the back of the bus. Pietism's Retreat Believers have for over a century retreated into antinomian, pietism, and pessimism. This retreat began in the 1870s. They have lost the vision of victory, which once motivated Christians to evangelize and then take over the Roman Empire. They have abandoned faith in one or more of the four features of Christian social philosophy that make progress possible. 
1. The, the dynamic of eschatological optimism. 2. The tool of the dominion covenant, biblical law. 3. The predestinating providence of God. and 4. Biblical presuppositionalism, the self-attesting truth of an infallible Bible. We should conclude then that either the dissolution of culture is at hand, for the common grace of the unregenerate cannot long be sustained without leadership in the realm of culture from the regenerate, or else the regenerate must remain sight, regain sight of their lost theological heritage, postmillennialism, and biblical law. For common grace to continue, and for external cooperation between believers and unbelievers to be fruitful or even possible, Christians must call the external culture's guidelines back to God's revealed law. They must regain the leadership they forfeited when they adopted as Christian the speculations of self-proclaimed, reasonable apostates. If this is not done, then we will slide back once more, until the unbelievers at last resemble the eek, and the Christians can begin the process of cultural domination once more. For common grace to continue to increase, it must be sustained by special grace. Either unbelievers will be converted or leadership will flow back toward the Christians. If neither happens, society will return eventually to barbarism. Understandably, I pray for the regeneration of the ungodly and the rediscovery of biblical law and accurate biblical eschatology on the part of present Christians and future converts. Whether we will see such a revival in our day is unknown to me. There are reasons to believe that it can and will happen. There are also reasons to doubt such optimism. The Lord knows. We must abandon antinomianism and eschatologies that are inherently antinomian. We must call men back to faith in the God of the whole Bible. We must affirm that in the plan of God there will come a day of increased self-awareness when men will call churls churlish and liberal men gracious. Isaiah 32 This will be a day of great and external blessings, the greatest in history. Long ages of such self-awareness unfold before us. And at the end of time comes a generation of rebels who know churls from liberals and strike out against the godly. They will lose the war. Common grace is future grace. Therefore, common grace is, is essentially future grace. There is an ebb and flow of both common grace and special grace throughout history. But essentially, the manifestation of all grace is in the future. It must not be seen as essentially prior or earlier grace. Only amillennialists can consistently hold to such a position. Antinomian amillennialists at that. Premillennialists at least have the millennium in front of them. In the amillennial scheme, the final judgment appears at the end of time against the backdrop of declining common grace. The postmillennial view sees this final satanic rebellion against the backdrop of maximum common grace. The common curse will be at its lowest point the prelude to special cursing of eternal duration. The final judgment comes, just as the great flood came, against the backdrop of God's widespread external benefits to mankind in general. The iniquity of the New Testament Amorites will at last be full. Does the postmillennialist believe that there will be faith in general on earth when Christ returns? Not if he understands the implications of the doctrine of common grace. It leads to a final rebellion by covenant breakers. Does he expect the whole earth to be destroyed by the unbelieving rebels before Christ uh, strikes them dead, doubly dead? No. The judgment comes before they can achieve their final goal, their evil goal. Will God destroy his preliminary down payment, preliminary manifestation of the new heavens and the new earth? 
Will God erase the sign that his word has been obeyed in history, that the dominion covenant has been nearly fulfilled by regenerate people? Will Satan, that great destroyer, have the joy of seeing God's word thwarted, his church's handiwork torn down by Satan's very hordes? The amillennialist answers yes. The postmillennialist must deny it with all his strength. Common grace is extended to allow unbelievers to fill up their, wrath, their cup of wrath. They are vessels of wrath. Therefore, the fulfilling of the terms of the Dominion Covenant through common grace is the final step in the process of filling up these vessels of wrath. The vessels of grace, believers, will also be filled. Everything will be filled, historically filled, full. There is continuity in life, despite discontinuities. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Satan would like to burn God's field, but he cannot. The tares and wheat grow to maturity, and then the reapers go out to harvest the wheat, cutting away the chaff and tossing it into the fire. Satan would like to turn back the crack of doom, return to ground zero, return to the Garden of Eden, when the Dominion Covenant was first given. He cannot do this. History moves forward toward the fulfillment of the Dominion Covenant, Genesis 1.28. As much a fulfillment as pre-final judgment mankind can achieve. At that point, common grace produces malevolence. Absolutely and finally, malevolence. When Satan uses the last of his time and the last of his power to strike out against God's people. When he uses his gifts to become finally, totally destructive, he is cut down from above. This final culmination of common grace is Satan's crack of doom. And the meek, meek before God active toward his creation, shall at last inherit the earth. A renewed earth and renewed heaven is the final payment by God the Father to his Son and to those he has given to his Son. This is the postmillennial hope. Answers In the introduction to this book, I asked a series of questions. Let me summarize my answers. Does a gift from God imply his favor? No. A gift from God is given to unbelievers for two primary reasons to bring them to humble, grateful repentance, and to heap coals of fire on the heads of those who refuse to repent, Romans 12.20. There is no favor shown to the latter group. Gifts to the unregenerate also extend the division of labor and thereby increase benefits for Christians. Christians can work for, with, or over unbelievers who at least to some degree manifest external righteousness. This enables everyone to increase his own output. Does an unregenerate man possess the power to do good? Yes. The unregenerate man has the work of the law written on his heart, Romans 2, 14 and 15. God grants him the power to perform externally righteous acts. This is an aspect of God's common grace to mankind. Man cannot do enough to earn his way to heaven, but God enables him to do enough good to distinguish himself in time and eternity from even more systematically perverse people. Luke 12, 47 and 48. Does the existence of good behavior on the part of the unbeliever deny the doctrine of total depravity? No. The depravity of man is total in principle. It is not total in history. If it were, sinners could not live. God, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, withholds his absolute final judgment until the last day. This gives all men temporal life for a time. God restrains the sinfulness of man because he shows common grace to all men and special grace to some men. He does not allow anyone to work entirely consistently 
with evil presuppositions. Though mankind rebelled definitively in the garden, God actively restrains the progressive increase of sinful behavior of individuals and cultures in history. Does history reveal a progressive separation between saved and lost? Yes, but this separation is ethical, not metaphysical. Those within the kingdom of God grow more self-consistent with God's ethical requirements. They become imitators of Christ, conforming themselves to His law, so that they may progressively reveal themselves as His people. They imitate His perfect humanity, though never His divinity. God restrains the covenant breakers from becoming totally consistent with their own God-defying presuppositions until the final rebellion just before the final judgment. Prior to this final judgment, we should expect to see covenant breakers act more in conformity with God's external laws so that they can participate in the external covenantal blessings. The separation is therefore primarily internal and ethical as time goes on to the extent that covenant breakers externalize their defiance against God. They will be rendered increasingly impotent, drug addiction, disease, military defeat, and all the other curses listed in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. Would such a separation necessarily lead to the triumph of the unregenerate? No, just the opposite. The ethical separation of covenant breakers from God is repressed by those covenant breakers who wish to prosper. Those who refuse to exercise self-restraint under God's common grace are steadily eliminated from places of influence and power. Is there a common ground intellectually between Christians and non-Christians? No. The only common ground between the saved and the lost is the image of God in all men. Any attempt to find a common approach to reason is fruitless. The unbeliever begins with the assumption of his own sovereignty before God. The believer is required to begin with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Thus, if the unbeliever is consistent with his own presupposition, he cannot logically come to faith in the God of the Bible. Thus, he must have his thinking transformed by grace. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Can Christians and non-Christians cooperate successfully in certain areas? Yes, they can cooperate because God restrains the covenant breaker from thinking and acting consistently with his own God-defying presuppositions. But the Christian must take care to see that this cooperation with covenant breakers is conducted on God's terms not the unbeliever's terms. This is why biblical law is crucial for successful dominion. It spells out the principles and specifics of all responsible action, including cooperation action with unbelievers. Do God's gifts increase or decrease over time? His gifts to covenant keepers increase over time. There is progress in history, spiritual, economic, scientific, and technological. Because these special gifts increase, like loaves on the table, the quantity of crumbs for the covenant breakers also increases over time, but only to the extent that they are not fully consistent with their own God-defying presuppositions. Will the cultural mandate, Dominion Covenant, of Genesis 1.28 be fulfilled? There will not be perfect fulfillment in time and on earth, for there will always be sin prior to the final judgment. Nevertheless, there will be progressive fulfillment over time as men more and more conform themselves to Christ's perfect humanity by means of His law, as empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's plan for the ages does not include visible, external, historical defeat for His church at the hands of Satan's forces. The death and resurrection of Christ 
guaranteed the visible, external, historical victory of the kingdom of God. Christ will deal with his enemies as if, as if they were footstools in time and on earth. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall, that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26 We come at last to the two questions that I left unanswered in the preface. How can a world full of reprobates be considered a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth? How can unbelievers possess so much power after generations of Christian dominion? First, let me deal with the problem of the vast number of reprobates of the last day. We are not sure from the text of Revelation 20 that they outnumber the Christians. A well-organized army does not have to outnumber their opponents if the opponents are not ready for a war. We can be sure that Satan's forces will be sufficiently well-organized to constitute a major threat to the Church. It is the final gasp of the power of religion. The concentration of satanic power for considerable periods of time is a possibility. Nevertheless, we have seen these previous satanic kingdoms arise primarily during periods of declining faith in God. Why? In the midst of the faithful church, will this horde be unleashed at that final day? The answer is easy. To end history. It will be the last power play of God's enemies. They will rebel in the face of good moral examples. They will not be a prelude to the historic judgment of Christians, as satanic outbreaks have been in the past. It will be a prelude to the final judgment of Satan. Satan's final rebellion is analogous to Hitler's decision to counterattack against British and American forces in the winter of 1944, when Germany was clearly beaten. The Battle of the Bulge was briefly a fearful slaughter. This is Satan's way, suicide. All those who hate God love death. Where will that growing army of reprobates be hiding until that final day? In churches, probably. They will remain outwardly faithful in terms of the externals of the covenant. This will increase their external blessings, their control over resources, and above all, their envy. Second, how will they be able to accumulate so much power? We have already seen the answer. From the external blessings of God on them during the era of that final generation. Common grace will be at its maximum, as it was in Methuselah's day just before the flood. They will not be living consistently with their own philosophy of chaos. They will be forced to admit who God is, what law is, and how the covenantal world really works. This will not lead to their regeneration. It will lead to their suicidal rebellion. Their rebellion will grow from the inside out. This is the meaning of the release of Satan. There will be a sudden outworking of the internal covenantal rebellion of untold numbers of previously upright citizens, externally upright. So here we have it an answer to that troubling question for postmillennialists. How, how does the postmillennialist explain the final rebellion of Satan at the end of history? My response, through a biblical understanding of common grace, eschatology, and biblical law. Postscript. By now, I have alienated every known Christian group. I have alienated the remaining Christian Reformed Church members who are Orthodox by siding with the Protestant Reformed Church against point one of the 1924 Synod. There is no favor in God's common grace. I have alienated the Protestant Reformed Church by arguing for postmillennialism. 
I have alienated the premillennialists by arguing that the separation between wheat and tares must come at the end of history, not a thousand years before the end, or in the dispensational pre-tribulational premillennial framework, a thousand and seven years before. I have alienated postmillennial pietists who read and delight in the works of Jonathan Edwards by arguing that Edwards's tradition was destructive to biblical law in 1740 and still is. It leads nowhere unless it matures and adopts the concept of biblical law as a tool of victory. I have alienated the Bible Presbyterian Church since his leaders deny the Dominion Covenant. I have alienated Greg Bonson by implying that one of his published arguments isn't consistent and even worse, that one of Meredith Klein's anti-Bonson arguments is. Have I missed anyone? Oh yes. I have alienated post-millennial Arminians, positive confession charismatics, by arguing that the rebels in the last day are not simply backslidden Christians. Having accomplished this, I hope that others will follow through on the outline I have sketched relating common grace, eschatology, and biblical law. Let those few who take this book seriously avoid the theological landmines that still clutter up the landscape. There are refinements that must be made, implications that must be discovered and then worked out. I hope that my contribution will make other men's tasks that much easier. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.